really um, a profound, stretching, humbling experience. And there's something about, well, when I think of community, I think playfulness is very important. Like, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. And then let's put everything away and light a fire and sing songs. Speak podcast conversations and recorded experiences on reclaiming our roots, connecting to our visions, and trusting our heart path. I'm your host, Megan, and I am here to share stories of healing, creativity, revival, and resilience for a time here on earth right now, a time in which I feel we are in the midst of a profound cultural transformation. The hearth, as a source of warmth, is traditionally the central community gathering space where storytelling takes place. Our stories are sacred, and the stories we tell ourselves and others have the potential to shape and inform how we show up for this larger story. Thank you for being here and taking the time to listen. So welcome everyone to another episode of HeartSpeak Podcast. Megan here, and I'm speaking today with Linda Buterian. Linda teaches at the University University of Minnesota and is the author of World Gone Beautiful, Life Along the Rum River, and The Changing Story, Digital Stories That Participate in Transforming Teaching and Learning. She and her family live in an intentional cul-de-sac with four other families in rural Minnesota along the wild Watpawakan, Dakota for Spirit River, also known as the Rum River. So thank you so much for joining me today, Linda. I'm so happy to have you. You are welcome. I was really thrilled when you um, asked me to join you on this podcast. Yeah, and just to give the listeners a little background, I met Linda when I was attending undergrad at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and I ended up taking a class with her called The Art of Identity and later a class about the rivers and focusing on the Mississippi River and other rivers around the world, connecting us through stories and place and time. And so Linda's been an incredible person for me on my own journey in just learning educationally in this way. I think that you bring such an incredible perspective to your teaching. And we'll get into that later. But first, I want to hear more about who you are beyond your bio, um, what you would like people to know more about you or what you would like to share. Oh, thanks. Uh, that I, I think that, you know, I live in community. Um, my husband and I and our two kids who are 21 and 19, and now they're home from college um, because of COVID-19, and we live next door to uh, these four other families, um, and we've had this property together, the three other families and my family for 25 years. We're going to celebrate our 25th anniversary this summer mm-hmm. um, uh, on the July 4th. We've recently um, invited the fourth family, Clint, Cass, and their three-year-old Jasper, to live here and um, they're, they're farmers. And so that's been really exciting and new. Um, like when I wrote my bio for you, that was the very first time that I put four instead mm-hmm. of three. Mm-hmm. And um, we've cultivated the first book that you mentioned, World Gone Beautiful. That's about uh, my experience of living in a community as a mother, a woman, a writer, and learning from the land and from the children and uh, what I've discovered about myself and others by living in community in a place. Um, And so uh, we, you know, we, over the 25 years, we've, um, well, we all lived in the farmhouse together, the original farmhouse, and we um, worked with the existing dwellings and we joined the septic and we shared gardens and things like that. And gradually we eventually um, either built or uh, renovated the, the structures that now, so each of us have our own house. Um, and what 
was I going to say about that, Megan? It was something you said, just that, that um, to me, this is a really foundational to who I am. Uh, I, I think communally, I teach collaboratively, you know, with my students. And uh, to me, this is foundational, uh, how I approach the world. And as you know, because you were my student and, you know, we, you went to and I teach at a research one institution, which isn't really, doesn't lend itself to kind of an applied experiential communally based learning. And it's taken me, well, I'm in my 19th year there, quite a while to figure out how to integrate my values and what I think is so important for students to learn um, into my classroom. But uh, I guess I, I lead with where I live because that's foundational to who I am. Thank you for sharing. I would agree with that. I think your story too is very inspiring for others who are just looking to make meaning in their lives and weave together different pieces and different identities, essentially, to come together and create a whole picture. And I'm curious if you could share more about how you came to be rooted in the place that you are currently at. Well, you know, I grew up in Ohio and um, I uh, ended up going to Wheaton College, which is a Christian college outside of Chicago. And through Wheaton, I did an alternative program that was one semester long in the mountains of Oregon. So this is 1983. And uh, a group of professors from Illinois bought an old logging mill in the mountains of Southern Oregon. It's, it's where the Siskiyous and the Cascades come together. And they created what was called the Oregon Extension. Uh, it's actually still going. It's got new owners, but um, they created this uh, intentional community learning space. So they lived in community with the students. So each of the professors had a house with their kids. And then we, the 20 to 25 students that came from colleges throughout the United States, we lived in cabins, uh, four to a cabin, and we chopped wood for our wood stove, and we made our own food, and then we determined our course of study with the professors according to the credits that we needed back at our respective colleges. So, for example, I needed philosophy, psychology, uh, an English class, and so then I worked with the professors to determine what it is that we would work, you know, uh, read and discuss together, and then collectively, the 24 students we read books that, um, for example, we read Jacques Ellul. He's a French philosopher. And he wrote a book called Technology, the, Technolo the Technological Society and Meaning in the City. So we read that book, and then we went to San Francisco. So we would read and discuss together, for example, the impact of technology on our lives and, and read Ellul. And then we would go to San Francisco and experience it. And we read about wilderness, Edward Abbey, Annie Dillard, um, Wendell Berry. And then we went and backpacked for three weeks or two weeks in the Three Sisters of the Marble Mountains. And so this really was an imprint on me. And this, this semester-long program is where I became a thinker and a writer and where I discovered that where I thrive is in community, in a beautiful place where we can work together and figure out collaboratively what it is that we think about things and whether we disagree or not. And, and part of that exploration is um, the place that we are experiencing this. And so that was 1983, life-changing. Uh, I went on to do other things, um, but uh, you know, I got a master's in creative writing and literature. I wrote, I taught. But always I had this desire to live in community. And um, I ended up going back to that uh, program to study theology. I was living in Washington, D.C., working at NBC News, of all things, as a receptionist mm -hmm. and working for a TV news magazine show. That was great. Um, but I heard that my professor back in Oregon was it was the last time he was going to teach this um, theology. And so I quit my job at NBC and went back. And that's where I met 
one of my best friends, Debbie Blue, we were put in the same cabin. She was there to study. And from there, she and I said, we're, let's, let's live in community. So as you mentioned the word meandering, I mean, we ended up running a cafe in the mountains <laughs> there, the Jenny Creek Cafe. I've written a novel and rewritten it many times. Maybe someday I'll finish it. But we did that, and she went on to go to Yale, and I went on to do my master's. And then we lived together in Madison, and then we you know, eventually had to find partners that were in agreement. And mm-hmm. so we helped each other find our partners, and um, we linked up with two other former Oregon Extension members uh, who also wanted to live in community, one of which is my husband's brother and his wife who went to the Oregon Extension, different years. And we looked for property. We were looking in Oregon, Kentucky, Wisconsin, but primarily Minnesota because all the men are from Minnesota and so they were looking where they live. And this place here was the first place that we had all agreed on. And they all came to my our wedding Jeff and my mine's wedding, which was in Cincinnati, they all came down. And the very next day after our wedding was our first community meeting. And this was pre-cell phone. And so they brought pictures, like, you know, developed pictures of the land that we had not seen, this land. And they talked about it and it just felt right intuitively. You know, if if everybody else thought it was right and I looked at the pictures and Jeff looked at we're like, okay. So we put money down and now here we are 25 years later. <laughs> so I, I think the Oregon extension, which does continue that place. I just visited it a month ago, right before COVID hit. Uh, and it's amazing to see, you know, those cabins and the park burner, which is like a giant rusted uh, ping pong. Um, what's that called? What is that thing that you hit? Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> you lose your words during COVID. Ping yeah. pong, you know what I mean? Cone, whatever. Anyways, so um, that's why I'm here and why I teach the way that you know me to teach. Mm. Oh, thank you for sharing that story. I love hearing about people's experiences. And you mentioned the word imprint. And it, I can see how all of these pieces of that and I'm sure even earlier in your life too how they've all come together to make a lot of sense for where you are but I'm sure you still ask yourself all the time you know as you are someone who considers yourself to be a deep thinker and someone who's inquisitive like how did I end up here and why am I here and you know those deep thought-provoking questions as well I'm sure are it's ever informing how you grow and how you participate in life. Um, I would love to hear too more about, you mentioned meeting your friend Debbie and how that led to the growth of the community and how all of those people came to be. And who are these people that have been an integral part of your journey, whether, you know, they're people or they could be plants or trees or, you know, what are those things that have really left a mark on you? Such a nice question. Yeah, I was thinking about our conversation today and kind of mentally preparing, like, who influenced me, how, and I thought the best way that I could prepare was to walk down to the river, because um, almost every day I walk down to the river through the meadows, the fields, and along the river, we're fortunate to have a half mile along the, it's a, a big river, it's wild and scenic in places. Um, and it, you know, after 25 years here, we've seen it in every season. And it is like it's a um, a member of my community, you know, it's a, it teaches me so much. And um, so immediately I think of that, like I, as you know, too, Megan, and you've been up here, you and Cody are some of the few um, from my university life that have experienced it, but it's it's a profound um, oh, and humbling experience to live along a wild river. It's not the same as the Mississippi. It hasn't been dredged. It hasn't been tamed. And so it reclaims what we consider our hay fields. We cultivate hay 
It takes over the woods and the hay fields, and it comes up way further than we would imagine, um, you know, different times. And it teaches us so much about the cycles of life, um, waxing and waning, and like winter, um, it freezes up and some winters uh, we can cross country ski and um, snowshoe on the river. This this uh, winter, Megan was the first time I went down there with my dog, and this was about mm, three weeks ago now. And it was really frozen. They're big, big chunks of um, like they look like glaciers to me, but you know it was like not moving. And um, and I was like, wow, that would be something when it, it moves the force of that. And then I walked around, we have trails and I was heading back up to the house and I heard this giant boom and crack. And I knew the river was breaking up. The ice was breaking up. So Josie, my little dachshund and I ran back through the field and lo and behold, there it was, it had broken up and it, I have pictures of it, a video of it, but it was remarkable to see it go from this broken I mean this frozen intact to just and the power of that you know especially during COVID like every it's just it's like Groundhog Day most of the time you know you just feel like nothing's happening and then to actually experience that moment was really profound to me yeah the river has been I really associate you with rivers. I think I've noticed that I have always been drawn to water, but more specifically rivers throughout my life. And I love that we were able to find each other and I was able to participate in your course that we were able to continue, even though it was just a small, wonderful group of us that we could have this exploration and be with the rivers and understand them in a deeper way. And I'm curious to hear more about the different rivers in your life that you've spent time with and why a river. Nice. Wow. So, um, (laughs) yeah, uh, I think you're right because it's moving water. Like, um, you know, I'm not from Minnesota, so the lakes are not something that is um, first nature to me. The Ohio River was close to where I lived, but, and then we had rivers. Um, but I think it's the moving nature of it that, that it's never the same twice. And living along this river has, uh, you know, increased my interest and in, to where, you know, I designed courses around the Mississippi River. I mean, that's that was mind-blowing to me that it took me a while to figure out but I'm like oh my gosh I teach along the Mississippi River I live along the Rum River and the Rum flows into the Mississippi River and so I mean ever since I started teaching at the U of M 19 years ago I was blown away that we were so fortunate to have the Mississippi River on our campus and and you know people love it but they don't really know it and I was surprised at how little interaction was happening in classes with the river and over the 18 years it's changed and more people are taking an interest in it but um the longer I I, the more I understood the systems at the U the more I was able to make connections and develop courses like the one you took the Mississippi uh, local and global and that has led me to two rivers, well, the Mississippi River. So I had this idea, and you and I, I think we've even discussed it, where we would create like a river semester. Um, And it turns out that Augsburg has that, and it's a semester-long program uh, called the River Semester. And um, I connected with that Professor Joe Underhill. And so a couple years back, I became a visiting uh, instructor. And so about 20 students, they start sometimes up at the headwaters of Itasca, and then they travel down via these large Voyagers canoes and camp along the way. And they learn all about ecosystem studies, environmental justice, uh, what communities are contending with. They meet with indigenous people, uh, first peoples, and talk about what they're addressing. And um, they go 
hopefully all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. It, it's kind of hard to f get it all in. So the year I visited for two weeks, uh, I was down by Davenport. And um, this was now three years ago, I believe. And it had rained so much that the locks and dams closed. They were flooded. And so I didn't really get to paddle. Uh, we, we had classes, well, a church well, we were camping and a church, we couldn't stay on our campground because it was so wet and flooded and a church welcomed us into their basement. And so I taught my first class there. And then Big Muddy Mike, who's in St. Louis, he's a river guide. He let us sleep in his backyard. And, um, and when he heard that I hadn't had a chance to go out on the river, he took all of us out to where the Mississippi and I think it's the Missouri River, the confluence right there outside of St. Louis. And Again, th this was the closest learning experience I've had to the Oregon Extension, where it was applied, it was uh, communal, and it was in, in this case, along or in the Mississippi River. And so um, I loved, 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 loved working with those students and learning from them about what they were learning. It's, it was a hard, I mean, hard paddle, hard elements. They experienced so much. And so I helped them to visual stories, whether they were digital stories, one woman was dancing, um, interpreting through dance, uh, other, others did different things. And then it went again this last fall. Um, it almost didn't go, but Joe fought for it. And my daughter decided to go, Audrey. So mm -hmm. she transferred to Augsburg and went on the river semester. And they um, had a remarkable experience because um well they did start at the headwaters and they did make it all the way down to the gulf you know uh, pausing in new orleans and other places they had to shuttle uh from place to place um but they linked up with this berlin group which is called hakeve cultures of the world hkw and hakeve uh looks at cultures of the world and independently from the river semester, they were looking to do an Anthropocene study. Um, I'm curious to know if that word has cropped up in your life so far. Mm, Anthropocene, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, human-centered. Yeah. So they looked at all the rivers of the world and determined that the Mississippi River would be an excellent site for an Anthropocene study. So mm. they developed uh, this uh, lengthy um, study, it took like five years, they contacted communities up and down the Mississippi River and then gave them money and said, will you develop a field site in which, um, you know, people can come and learn what your issues are. Like up north, it's mining. In other places, it might be industrial waste. Like around New Orleans, uh, there's a lot of pollution and um, environmental racism and things like that. And so Hakeve and the River Semester came together. And so Audrey ended up interacting with like over a hundred different people from around the world, artists, ecologists, um, a remarkable experience. And so mm -hmm. I got to join them around Natchez and Memphis and that paddle was beautiful. It was a very natural part of the river we put in around Natchez, I think, and ended up near Memphis and camped on a sandbar. Oh, it's just beautiful. I'm right now. I'm looking at rocks that I found um, on that sandbar that are just so uh, distinct from other rocks that I've collected. So the Mississippi, and then the one other is the Mekong River. Um, I was fortunate to collaborate with Dr. Catherine Solheim. She's a professor in family social science at the University of Minnesota, and she is. Um, has lived in Thailand, is married to a Thai, she's fluent in Thai, and she has uh, community connections throughout Thailand. And so she and I designed a study abroad that uh, looked at the impact of globalization and climate change on families and communities and cultures. And specifically along the Mekong River and the building of giant dams, which China and Thailand are involved in their building huge dams to support uh, power and um, supply of water, which is having a profound impact on communities and um, the environment. Uh, it, nothing we haven't done here in the U.S., but it's really something to 
So for example, the Mississippi River used to be a wild river and now it's dredged and it's um, not, you know, it's used, it's essentially a highway to transport goods. And that's what they want to do with the Mekong. Uh, the China wants to transport their goods to the West and they want to use the Mekong. So in order to do that, they have to widen it. They have to put explosives to um, clear out the rocks, which is exactly where the eggs of the fish are. And they they just want to make it big enough for their barges to go through so they can bring goods to us so that we'll buy it, and et cetera. But it's really remarkable to see these young, these um, community members along the Mekong resisting. Uh, you know, they've had their way of life. They've depended on the Mekong for the salal and for the natural vegetables and the fish. Uh, and, it, and it's having a profound impact on them. And they are uh, resisting in really beautiful, powerful ways. Specifically, the one I'm thinking of is this um, Love Mekong group that created a school right on the banks of the Mekong. And um, they are teaching local wisdom to the young people who are losing their traditions and ways of life. And they are inviting people from all over the world to come and learn from them and learn about the Mekong so that uh, they can spread the word so that, you know, they can influence um, the Chinese government and the Thai government, which is no small thing to try to influence such powerful beings, you know, institutions. So. Yeah, absolutely. I love to see how the rivers have made such a profound impact on your life and how they've shared these stories and how the stories of the people living along the river and the challenges that they face and the joys that they face seeing next to a body of water that's used to transport goods or altered by human needs and what what are the stories of the river and all of the complexities that go along with with that and the environmental impacts and I just think it's really wonderful that you found ways to integrate this important work into your teaching and to be involved with programs and understand how you can as a person who is an advocate for the river and a river lover to be a part of that and I would love to hear more about um, digital stories you've mentioned that a few times and the impact of digital stories and how um, in relationship to either the river or other uh, locations that people choose to focus on the students that you've worked with why are those so important mm. Yeah, um, so just a, a digital story for those that might be, it might be a new um, term, but it's it's a short video project that students create. Uh, they um, can create it on their phone or on their laptop or with a camera. And then the, um, the way I have defined a digital story, and Megan created a really good one, as did mm -hmm. Phoebe, um, the other student that was in that Mississippi class. But they, I have students, um, well, I designed a course around water resource topics. Um, and in that course, each student created a, a digital story about a water resource topic that, that was compelling to them. And so just having them first research and think about what they care about and then connecting what they care about to the larger topics. And then they set about creating images, videos, and they interview an expert in that um, field. And then they uh, decide things like voiceover, music, and they put research in it. And then they decide, you know, what position, if they're gonna take one or if it's exploratory. And then they edit it. And then we always made it public because I felt that their work is efficacious beyond the limits of the classroom. It was really helpful for them to see how making a story and then having it travel can have an impact on others. I, I want to talk about your story and um, then um, another one, but um, Megan can speak, you can speak more to your story because you know it best, but the, the way you found that artist 
and you can t- say his name when, when you talk about it, but who was actually using the Mississippi River to create his art. Um, I'll let you talk about that one. The other one that comes to mind, and there's so many, because I taught this, this water course several years, and then I taught the Mississippi River course, and then I, I taught other courses like the Mekong. Um, uh, we had our students create digital stories about that. But one that comes to mind is Sarah, and she is from um, Pakistan, I think I said. Yeah, Pakistan. And her it turns out her grandfather was uh, the chief engineer for the country, and he was the water engineer. So he was responsible for all of the major water projects for the country of Pakistan. And so when she got this assignment, she thought, well, you know, maybe I'll have a conversation with my grandfather. So she called him up and over a series of phone calls and and also FaceTime, they talked about his work. And Sarah was always kind of young and and he was kind of a stern older guy. So this was the first real adult conversation they had about his work. And at the end, he said, finally, someone in my family knows my life's purpose. So Sarah decided to create a comic story, which I was really excited about because I think comics have a profound uh, possibility for educating people. I mean, they have a long history, too. Martin Luther King used a comic, that um, book, to educate people about race issues in the South. And Uh, you know, a mouse uh, about the Nazis. And um, so anyways, she found, she created kind of a digital story that was comic based. And it was about this conversation with her grandfather. And in the course of this comic, she educated us on the water issues that are looming, that have been operative in Pakistan, but are even worse now because of water scarcity and because of a lack of planning and all that. And so she did a great job and she chose to share that uh, on her Facebook and other places. And her grandfather was so proud. And then uh, two years later, he died. And so it became not only this important artifact to educate others, but it came part of their family legacy. Uh, And it documented the work that he did and what he cared about. And then a couple of years later, Sarah contacted me and said that uh, in a nonprofit group in Pakistan saw her story online and asked if they could use it because their focus was on educating citizens in Pakistan about water resource issues to better prepare them for what they are facing. And to me, that really is indicative of the potential reach or impact a story can have. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And would you, Megan, talk about your story that you created for that class? Yeah, that was, that project was, I remember, such an incredible stretch for me to learn how to create digital content. I had never really made a video before, and I had a lot of fun with communicating ideas in that way. I'm so used to writing papers and so used Uh to communicating um, through like a speech or something of that nature. And so to work with visuals in a dynamic way and integrate with finding somebody to have a conversation with about their own work was very impactful. And I had a lot of fun with um, just documenting my personal experience with the river and show, so I showed some clips of myself near the river on various bridges or near the water or like a shot of, I remember now there was a shot of a drinking fountain and kind of communicating like, where does our water come from and what's happening with the water? And the artists that I connected with through the magic of the internet, I I don't even really remember how I found him. Um, I believe it was just, I really was looking for someone who was creating really impactful art to communicate a message. And so Peter L. Johnson is his name. 
Oh yeah. Okay. And yeah. And now it's making me really want to reconnect with him because <laughs> I'm wondering what he's up to these days. Um, but anyway, he is someone at the time he was taking photographs of people that were getting into the river, um, just completely bare, letting themselves be immersed in the water. And he talked about how you could only be in the water for a certain length of time because it was so polluted and just communicating this impact that we're having, that humans are having on the water and demonstrating that through just people like getting in there and immersing themselves, but how really dangerous that could be. And just these really haunting images of people and also working with natural elements of the river. So he would find um, clay or other things, uh, waste, trash, things like that to make art with that he would um, just create these beautiful um, pictures. And just to also tell the story of all that's happening and to get people and stop and pay attention and I just really appreciated his way of engaging and how much he was so passionate about this. So that was a really incredible project to be involved in. Yeah, and I so appreciated it's it's really interesting um, just working with students, but and seeing differences and everything. But you you actually went out to his uh, studio and interviewed him, and mm-hmm. then. Um, showed him with his art and then and and to me that's that's just great like sometimes students have email exchanges or sometimes you know all different things but that I remember it just had a and then you had to edit all that down that's the it's 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 very hard (laughs) you know and I was just talking with a colleague about this Megan because um she's assigning digital stories and she was saying you know I forget what, but I was saying it hasn't yet been colonized. It has not yet been commodified. Like there's a, still a kind of wild nature to it. Um, no matter how hard we try to make it easier for students, it's still challenging to, you know, you're you're accessing the higher level thinking skills like uh, Bloom's revised taxonomy kind of uh, does this taxonomy of learning. And at the top of the triangle is creativity Mm -hmm. so you're 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 having to communicate these complex subjects uh in a visual way but then you've also got this whole technological challenge and um so many things happen in it that or can happen in it I mean it it can be just a one-off depending on if the teacher has thought through the assignment and how the student approaches it but like in your case and in Phoebe's case you went and interviewed them and then you shot and edited it and you wove it in with your own images and with the Mississippi River. And let me share everybody, this is one of the coldest winters on mm-hmm. record that we were t- doing this class. So it was mm-hmm. really hard to actually access the river at this point. But um, I think something really important happens that that kind of agency that you you know used and persisted with is, is an important part of the digital story assignment. Yeah, and I'm thinking now, too, about just how in being given this opportunity to explore that creativity and do something different and stretch and put yourself out there by going and making that connection. And I think in the space of, at least in my undergrad experience, I wasn't feeling challenged enough in a lot of areas. And so to have something that was, you know, putting me in a position where I could make these connections and learn about experiential approaches was a great way for me to then graduate and move on with my life and understand that there's so many different ways to approach art and take a different leap and to understand the importance of really what experiential education looks like and in, in a community sense too. And when we shared them inviting the artists or the people that we interviewed to come and be there, that was another aspect that I just loved. And I think that's a really special thing to have that, you know, 
in a big university when you kind of feel like a fish out of water sometimes like where like where do I go what do I do there's so many opportunities but it's there's so there's so much that you can't really kind of ground in and this really allowed me the opportunity opportunity to focus in that way and I think it you know did make an imprint on me now that I'm looking at the work I'm doing in the world and looking at my deep connection and love with nature and how to communicate that education with other people and wanting to teach and wanting to share and all of those things like you can see the threads kind of moving so I just really want to thank you for that wow that's nice to hear yeah I see that in you you and Cody are living it like what I you know the many things that are I try to cultivate uh fostering creativity is such an important I think um and under undervalued and underutilized uh resource um, you know at, at the university and elsewhere it's such an important part of our ability to thrive as well as survive and that and and working collaboratively um again not an easy thing to cultivate as you know and the larger the class sizes get and the more it becomes like technologized or whatever the mm -hmm. harder it is to foster these one-on-one -on -one conversations or these small group conversations where people have differences of opinions and they can I don't think we're very adept at that in America I and mean, it really becomes obvious when you travel elsewhere like you you traveled and you know there's places where people sit around and have conversations that really help to sharpen each other and to I, yeah I, I'm losing the thread but I, I I really take a lot of hope from you and Cody because you really you really live a lot of these things just um, working with other people connecting people uh, helping to foster what what they have and and they need help like a lot of times we don't know what we have and then it and then or we need a little bit of something else and you all are doing that in, in ways that are really inspiring to me as well so thank you yeah what to you really makes collaboration work um how do you see collaboration operate in the community do you have any insights or experiences that are coming to mind challenges exciting opportunities like when you think of community and collaboration what do you feel like is important and needed mm. um well right away i think of our our community here and you know as you know because you've done a lot of groups there's a lot of interest in communal living and um, intentional living and mm -hmm. it is not easy so you know and we are not prepared like i grew up middle class in springfield ohio white you know like very little compared you know prepared me for um deciding let's say where the gardens go and and this uh, wood-fired hot tub and um how are we going to pay for our taxes and oh my gosh we've got to build this house before winter comes oh none of us know how to build except for dana and jim you know like it, it was put everything away and light a fire and sing songs and play the guitar because playfulness is such an important part of this whole endeavor. Uh, and it's, again, one thing that I really wish we did better in higher education is playfulness. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, this um, Einstein, uh, I wonder if you follow brain pickings. Do you know that by Maria yeah, Popova? Definitely. Yeah. I love her. Well, that one that she talks about combinatory play, where um, Einstein was asked, like, what is your process for discovering? You know, how do you come up with your, you know, your insights? And um, he thought about his own process, and it came up with combinatory play, where, okay, he'll be working in the lab, so that's kinetic, like he's using his hands in the lab, and it's also looking at his, you know, observing. And then he'll take a break and he'll play his violin. Mm -hmm. And it's often when he's playing the violin that the insights will occur, that he'll have this aha, and then he goes back to the lab. So this combinatory play 
I think again is part of what makes community really active is because we are we are actually like doing things like working in the garden or you know you know so we're it's a physical thing as well as a auditory and a um, so I think that's all important to engage the different senses to make people feel that they are of value and then to provide them with um, uh, uh, ways of being playful and creative um, those are important and then you know, Megan, the other thing I was thinking about with community, I mean, I think I used to move every two years and I, I'm a Sag. I mean, I love to explore. I just, and I'm drawn to all things, you know, I just like, oh, well, I've been living in the same place for 25 years. This is profound to me. Like I, I'm, I'm just, and there was, there's, I've learned so much from staying put uh, and COVID really is driving that home, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. one of the harder things about being in place is me. <laughs> like having to like face me all the time and my mm-hmm. restlessness and my discontent and my insecurity and my desire to eat, eat, eat. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know what I'm saying there, but I find community to be quite humbling and um, like a giant Buddha. You know, it's like a, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I so, I resonate with the discontent and the wanting to learn and feeling scattered and (laughs) how much of a teacher it really can be to just slow down and, and pay attention to your surroundings. I love, I love that lesson. I, I would love to hear more about just with everything that's going on, like what's on your heart these days and how are you, staying rooted at home and what different things do you have going on that are exciting or challenging for you in these times? Mm. Uh, I uh, think it's really powerful, isn't it, that the environment is uh, really benefiting from our pandemic in, in many ways, the water, the air, you know, you see pictures of the Himalayas that you haven't seen because of, you know, people aren't exuding the pollution or the canals in Venice are clear and things like that. So that's, that's such a window uh, for all of us to realize that, you know, we, when we talk about climate change and global warming and it's very hard, it's so complex and it seems really out there and it feels like it's such an investment. And, but this has not been a long time and immediately we're seeing some rewards of staying put and not expending and consuming. So in a larger sense, that's interesting. In our sense, we're doing a lot of baking bread and um, eating good food that we're making. And Clinton Cass, the farmers I tell you about, he brought over two bags of um, salad and spinach that he's growing. There's a new CSA, a young couple, that moved into Princeton, which is about 12 miles away from us. And mm-hmm. he's working there in their uh, greenhouses. And um, they're gonna be putting up hoop houses here and um, bringing in a herd of sheep. And they're gonna be uh, developing uh, their seed cultivators, um, which again is really important uh, in the face of climate change. Um, we're gonna need those seeds. Mm-hmm. And in order to cultivate those seeds, um, Clint has, with his three-year-old Jasper, has uh, gotten to know all the neighbors around us because it's important that those neighbors plant the same, let's say, squash seeds that Clint, Clint is planting in order, you know, so that they get the right um, crop, if you will. And so he's getting to know the neighbors and offering them seeds, offering them plants, if, if indeed they're going to grow squash, would they be willing to grow the squash he's growing? And we are learning so much from them. I mean, we, we are not farmers. We, we continued to cultivate the hay that was cultivated when we bought this place 25 years ago. And we have our own gardens. Cindy's a gardener, my next door neighbor. But that's not been our our intention has been to live in community and to develop our houses and raise our children. They're coming in and seeing our close to 90 acres from the perspective of soil and land and what can happen collectively. This is so heartening and 
wonderful to us. And um, it's really fun to have a three-year-old around and mm-hmm. to get to know these young people, Clint and Cass, and to learn from them. And also, oh, Megan, it's so satisfying. Like, you know, like we were living our life. We did this because we wanted to. Of course, it was hard at times, but it's so satisfying that we can now support their efforts because young farmers, that's what they need. They need land and they need affordable mm-hmm. places to do their work. And so it's um, really rewarding to see that happening. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's so great to hear about all the potential you have going out there and staying strong in your community through all of these intense times. And it gives me a lot of hope to see all the people learning these skills and just figuring out what they can do and how they can connect. And it's it's just really special and so important right now. Um, I think that for anyone listening to just to get a sense of where you're at and more of the stories and, and how your family has grown up in this space to reading your book, World Gone Beautiful, is just a great, great place to start. And I wanted to know if there's anything you want to say about that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is available on Amazon. Um, I have copies too, and my publisher, Dan, he lives right in uh, St. Paul. He lives in community himself. Uh, he's an inspiration to me. He's homeschooling his kids. But yes, uh, World Gone Beautiful Life Along the Rum River is the uh, collection of first-person narratives about my experience of living in community. And um, I'd love it if people read it. It's also available at the library. I love it when people, you can go to your library and request a book. So if mm-hmm. it's not at your library, ask them to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but um it's a pleasure when um, people read it. It's funny, um, Audrey's friend, who's not much of a reader normally, but COVID has uh, finally kind of forced her to <laughs> sit and read. And she picked up my book and she loved it. She texted me and she's like, I love reading. It may, it's making me laugh and making me cry. And I want to know more about your Romanian family uh, because there's a whole chapter called inherited beauty about them and she said could I ever see pictures of them and then I sent her pictures of my Romanian grandmother Sophia and my aunts Tusha Mary Tusha Helen anyways that's so life-giving yeah I love that do you have any plans for a future book (laughs) well I have been rethinking this um Jenny Creek story the about um running a cafe with my friends and um uh up on the mountain of Oregon and I I have worked so hard on it and then let it go um and I I go back and forth about whether I want to revisit it or if I want to write a screenplay for it so that's a possibility that story because I think it still has it's really about what we're talking about in many ways about communities and the how large forces like the U.S. government um can uh, make decisions that have profound impacts on lives, uh, you know, far away from DC. And um, so it explores that because that's it's the eighties during the, remember the spotted owl versus the logger and um, versus logging. And it was also when the war on drugs happened, which had an impact on a lot of people in that community. And um, so I might do that. I don't know. (laughs) As you know, Megan, and you are a good writer too. It is always this tussle between living, you know, like I'm busy living, even though it's COVID, I should have more time to write, but I just somehow get caught up in the living. It's a Sagittarius thing again. (laughs) Well, I think it's beautiful to get caught up in the living. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll do that. Um, Yeah. Thank you for asking. That's a good question. I'd love to write about teaching too. And in essence, the second book, which is free and online, um, The Changing Story, Digital Stories That Participate in Transforming Teaching and Learning, I used storytelling to tell about digital stories. So it's written in a very story-like fashion, every chapter. Mm -hmm. And then the last section is um, essays. They're visual stories. So I would write about an experience of teaching 
digital stories, usually funny, humbling. And then we hired a student artist to illustrate, to create a visual version of that so that people that read that can do a kind of a meta learning experience of like what happens when you bring images into it. So people that are interested in learning about my teaching um, with stories, it's free, it's online. Um, I wanted to make it accessible to everybody, so. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I love that one too. I have a copy of your first book and I have, I'm not sure if I read the whole Changing Story yet, but I've definitely checked it out and both are just really great ways to get to know you better in an intimate way and get to know your work and all of those overlapping things that you care about. So I'm really glad that you're doing that and I'm looking forward to more <laughs> when they oh. come, when you're feeling inspired, you know, no pressure. <laughs> Thank you, Megan. Yeah. Wow. And is there anything else on your heart right now that you want to share? Anything else that's coming up in this moment? Uh, women. I think it's such an important time for women to collaborate and uh, emerge, you know, or, or however you say, uh, honor what they know. And, and this, of course, includes men. Like you've chosen a man that supports you and honors you and helps you. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I am really struck by women and girls and globally as well as locally. Uh, I think it's, it's something about climate change and uh, climate justice that it's even more obvious that we need what women understand and cultivate. And it's a real wake up call for women too. Like, unfortunately, culturally, we inherit um, self-doubt and um, insecurities and challenges uh, about all kinds of things. And there's something about this climate crisis that is really like, we don't, we can't afford that for ourselves. I mean, it's always been true, but Mm -hmm. it's just so clear to me, like we need to well manifest, you know? And um, so that's been, uh, that's on my heart too. Mm. I love that. Yeah. It's so important. I'm feeling, feeling very thoughtful around the people in my life right now too. And specifically the relationships I have with women. I think that there's something powerful you're speaking to there and just checking in on each other and offering support and seeing what we can do in our own communities with that and seeing that ripple effect outward and to keep creating in this time and to keep sharing art and story and magic in whatever ways that we can, I think is going to be imperative right now. Right. Yeah. You're, you're helping me. Yes. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you cause I like, no, go. <laughs> but you, you're helping me realize like, um, there's an artist that I follow on Instagram, Becky Bailey, and I've never met her, but she offered to send free art. If you mm. just direct message her, and I'm looking at her art right now that she sent it's on handmade paper and it's this collage and she wrote me a letter on the back and then um, a comedian I love Maria Bamford who I've seen a couple times uh, she's you know in LA she uh, offered zoom um, groups to try out her new material and you just had to donate to a food pantry or Mm. um, and So here I am with like 30 other people and Maria Bamford and we're on Zoom. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's amazing to me. And then the third thing, what was it? Oh, I did a dance class um, through Xenon um, and via Zoom with Erin Liebhart. She's a jazz dancer because, um, you know, that art class you took, I've cultivated, I integrated dance. And so we had had this dance residency and we couldn't go to the Coles. So Coles figured out how to zoom the dancers in from their living room or studios to us. And so we moved that to the zoom platform. So in those, when you were just talking, I realized those three are all women and we had figured out ways to carry on our creativity, you know, online and or through the mail. Mm. Oh, that's so great to hear. 
Yeah, I'll have to check out. I need to do some dancing <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, it felt good. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here with me today, Linda. I really appreciate everything you had to share. I know others will too.